I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the recent Prigozhin putsch, I have my absolute favorite guest. He is co-equal my favorite guest with Seth Jones, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, Dr. Elliot Cohen, former dean at SICE, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and of course, the CSIS Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy. Elliot, you are just back from Ukraine and Poland. Tell me about that, and then I want to get into this brilliant piece you wrote for The Atlantic. Uh, Well, uh, thanks very much. It's uh, always good to be back with you, Andrew. I was in Poland for a very small conference, mainly Europeans, a few Americans, thinking about the best way to to guarantee Ukraine's future security. And I mean, we're still working on the, the final papers that'll come out. We want to brief people in government. But I think it's fair to say that all of us concluded that NATO membership for Ukraine is imperative, not just for Ukraine, but for the security of the West. I'll have more to say about this later on. I, I can't really add too much about it right now. But I, I will say that people are thinking about NATO membership for Ukraine as a favor or as an act of compassion, or as admission to an exclusive club, you know, where you have to make sure that your shoes are shined and your uh, the colors of your shirts are clean. That's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is what is the best way of ensuring the security of the West overall, particularly Ukraine. I then drove to Ukraine with a couple of uh, Polish, very senior Polish friends, both practitioners, experts, was giving a lecture at the Kiev Mohila Academy, which is a quite an old college or university, really, in Kiev. Uh, we had several days there meeting with senior military, diplomatic, and intelligence officials. And then we drove back through Lviv, which I'd never been to. And always fascinating to go to Ukraine. The Ukrainians are incredibly impressive. I'll just say a, a couple of things that really struck me. First is, you know, you go to Ukraine, you realize you're in Europe. I mean, this is this is not the distant East. The uh, culture is very similar. It's, you know, it's the cafe culture people are out and about. There's a kind of a jarring contrast between the normalcy of street life, you know, restaurants, cafes, and so on. And then, you know, you're woken up in the middle of the night by uh, a loudspeaker telling you to get in the shelter because there are cruise missiles on the way. And you're always reminded of the losses. I mean, I went into this big lecture hall and there right above the entryway was the names of all the students and faculty who've fallen in this war. On the way back, to, it was, we we're going to Lviv. It's a big country, so it was a long drive and needed to take a break. We went to the to the cemetery in Lviv, which includes a large, actually Polish and Ukrainian, but primarily Ukrainian military cemetery. And it's just, it's heart-wrenching when you, uh, you know, you walk among the graves. The Ukrainians, at least in this cemetery, and I think everywhere, you know, the, the, the graves are beautifully decorated with lots of flowers. There's pictures of the fallen, who, of course, range in age from being quite young to being middle-aged and even a little bit beyond. Quite colorful and very, very poignant. And you just, you know, you realize the price that they're paying for freedom. And the price that they're willing to pay. But I think, you know, I came away with a renewed sense of our obligation to do everything in our power 
to help them win. And then in the middle of this, of course, we had the Prigozhin affair. I will just say one thing. We were meeting with some intelligence people, quite senior. And we, we began the conversation. This was on Friday. So it's before the mutiny on Saturday or putsch or whatever it is. And we said, uh, uh, by the way, what about Prigozhin? And the two of them looked at each other and there was kind of a sly smile and wink. And then they gave a perfectly anodyne answer. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Ukrainians had some clue that this was in the works. In fact, it seems like everybody had a clue that this was in the works, but not necessarily Vladimir Putin. So there it was. Fascinating trip as ever. And, you know, reinforced, I wouldn't say it changed any of my views. It reinforced some, particularly on, on the imperative of NATO membership and fast for Ukraine. Well, what was the mood while you were there, I mean, amidst all the death, the suffering, and the resilience, what did what did you what did you feel like when you were talking to the people there? What did you get from them? I, you know, I think of the same feeling I've had previous times. It's um, confident but not cocky, resolute. They feel the losses. The I thought the, the Kiev itself felt more relaxed than the last time we were there. You. It was interesting. There were more billboards, which were either recruiting or kind of motivational, but you saw fewer of the uh, anti-tank obstacles, which had been there before. Driving in, there were plenty of checkpoints. It was sort of fortified little checkpoints and fortified positions. Most of them were not, I thought, being occupied. You know, you had a feeling that they... They're not relaxed by any... But, you know, they're fairly confident about their immediate surroundings there in Kyiv. And for the rest, really, the determination to carry on and to build a, a, a modern European state, uh, which they will do as this war comes to what I think is a, you know, going to be the pretty clear conclusion, which is a large Russian defeat. So, Elliot, you wrote in your column in The Atlantic this week uh, a piece called The Three Logics of the Prigozhin Putsch. Putin may be as uncertain as the rest of us about what just happened. What did just happen in your view? And and I think just as importantly, if not more importantly, what does this mean for the future of this war in Ukraine for the Ukrainians? And what does it mean for Putin himself? So uh, just a quick recap for people who haven't read the piece. It's, uh, I say, the three logics are first the imperialist, really fascist sort of ideological logic, which I believe animated much, though not all, of the decision to launch the invasion, the belief that Ukraine has to be subsumed into Russia. Second is the logic of war, which is just, it does have its own logic in a certain way. And the, the third logic is a kind of mafia logic, which is, I think, is what's going on now. So I think what happened, and I'm probably influenced by the polls in this, but I think it squares with the evidence, that this was not simply Prigozhin acting on the spur of the moment or, you know, simply going crazy. And that he had reason to believe that he would have support in upper echelons of the military and other parts of the government. And I think that's actually recently that's being confirmed because you see the arrest of General Surovikin, you're getting stories coming out, most of them not confirmed, but still of generals being arrested and tension between the FSB, the secret police and the uh, the military. 
So I think what you're, I think this was an intra-elite fight. I think it reflects the belief that Putin's days are probably numbered. Now there's a there's a view out there that this actually strengthened Putin in some way, and I, I find that very hard to believe. I mean, there are serious people who make it, but I, I I don't believe it. So I think this is part and parcel of first a, some large intra elite fights, but I think it's also reflects a political culture and state institutions that are in deep deep trouble. You know, the, the very fact of having these private armies and relying on them is an indication that you've got a state in deep trouble. And I think that that's come out. And I think what you're now about to see, or you're probably already seeing, is a lot of people getting very paranoid and suspicious and using violence against one, one another. I mean, I don't know if poison counts as violence, but I think there probably does. Uh, so there'll be people poisoned and shot and falling out of windows and cars running off the road and stuff like that. And I think ultimately it's going to weaken... The Russian military even further uh, for two reasons. One is the high command in Ukraine is undoubtedly looking over its shoulder at what's going on in Moscow. And, you know, they're worried about their patrons and and so forth. And quite possibly, Moscow may very well divert resources to its own defense going forward. And then it has to have an effect on morale because Prigozhin said some things which hitherto had been unsayable, you know, that the war was la launched under false pretenses, that it's been incredibly badly managed. And that's bound to affect morale of the troops on the ground. And, you know, he'll, I think there's a good chance that he'll go down as the guy who was speaking the truth. I mean, this is, I think, the view from, could be the view from the trenches. And, you know, the other guys are worthless and completely callous about their lives and so forth. You know, what? just one point that I think it's worth people knowing that, I mean, Prigozhin's a monster. He's committed all kinds of war crimes and, you know, he took all these convicts and just basically fed them into a meat grinder. But for the professional part of, of Wagner, you know, his reputation was the guy who actually, he paid people. He looked after their families and he went down into the trenches and, you know, he was there and, and saw what was going on and engaged directly. That is not what Vladimir Putin's done. It's not what any of his deputies have done. It doesn't seem to be really what many of the generals have done, the most senior generals, that is, that we know of. And troops notice that. They notice who comes visit them on the, to visit them on the front line and who doesn't. So I think this is actually a very big setback for the Russians. I think it's a harbinger of things to come. And it's good for Ukraine. And what they had in Prigozhin is someone, like you said, this is a bombastic, swaggering, thuggish leader who liked to be in the trenches with his people, contrasted by billionaire, multi-multi-multi-billionaire Vladimir Putin, sitting at a long table removed from everything and everybody. And this this guy, Prigozhin, said a lot of things that really fly in the face of Putin's ability to lead, didn't he? Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm sure the Ukrainians are broadcasting that back out on Telegram channels and so on. Now, I mean, before anybody gets too romantic about Prigozhin, I think a lot of that is staged and it's theater and so on. So I don't want to, nobody should think that this, that he's a military leader 
you know, kind of like an American general would be. No, but he was good at projecting himself. But he was very good at projecting himself. And it's clear that he had, uh, it's clear, firstly, that, that Wagner is personally very loyal to him. And secondly, that there were a lot of people in the military who were either very sympathetic or at least willing to look the other way and wait to see what happens. So this is bad for Putin. There's no question about it in your mind. Tell me about this mafia theory that you have. It's based on, you know, Mario Puzo and the Godfather. Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, what I, what I do in the article is say, look, these three logics intersect. And at the moment, it's a mafia logic. And they, the reason why I say that is it's a competition for power where there are no rules, where everything is personal. You know, one of the things I, I quote is that, that that famous line in The Godfather, it's not personal, it's business. Actually, if you think about that movie, no, it's all personal. It's that's very the whole personal. point of it is everything is personal. They're pretending it's business. And I think that's exactly what it is here. And it's where just, there's no clear succession, There's which is a big issue. There are no rules. Everything is about personal loyalty, but personal loyalty can crack and or be bought. I said in the piece that the the great line that uh, Putin is probably thinking about is where, if he watched the movie, I have no idea, where the older Don Corleone says to Michael that the guy who brings you the negotiation with Barzini, who's one of the rival Dons, is the traitor. Don't forget that. Right. He knew all along it was Barzini. Putin is probably thinking about, okay, who are the guys who wanted me to let Prigozhin live? And so that could have an impact on Lukashenko's future, but probably a whole bunch of other people who are engaged as well. And those people are sweating and they're you know, going to try to demonstrate their loyalty and, and it'll just be, it'll be a mess. And because it's a system that is, pretends to be a legal system, but it's not a legal system, what this means is if, you know, if Putin ever gets sidelined, however that happens, it's just going to be a, a huge cat fight and may will probably not get resolved very quickly either. And now Putin is left trying to figure out who's loyal to him, who's not. And it's a big distraction for him as to proceeding forward with this war, isn't it? Well, and th that's right. But it, I think it goes even further than that. That is to say, for Putin, as for any godfather... The most important thing is preserving their own position because the price of losing your position is death and everything else is secondary. So the, the things that you need to do to fight the war, that's secondary. The ideological aims for which you went to war, that's secondary. He will, everything will go to survival. I mean, a little tell on this was so the, the Roskvardia, which is the kind of internal security force, the head of it just, and they performed very poorly. They just announced that they're going to be getting tanks and heavy artillery, which they haven't had. I mean, they've basically been there to beat up civilians who protest. Well, that'll take away from the war effort. It's not like they have that many tanks left over. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if they give them tanks, because the most important thing is regime protection. And in these kinds of regimes, that's that's how it works. You know, the most the best units with the fanciest equipment and the best training and best pay are the units that are devoted to regime protection. And that'll that's unquestionably going to be the case here. Okay, so 
where does that leave Ukraine? Does Ukraine obviously knows all this? And what is it going to mean for them in continuing their counteroffensive? So I think it has it has their number of effects. One is there's obviously all kinds of great information warfare possibilities that open up here, and I'm sure they're taking advantage of them. Second thing is they will undoubtedly be paying close attention to uh, the commanders in the different sectors and where they stand politically and what they're doing and who wouldn't want to fight against a distracted enemy. So I wouldn't be surprised if they'll be looking for the enemy that's really that's really distracted. And I think the third way in which they benefit is there have always been voices out there saying, oh, you know, the, the Ukrainians can never really win. It's going to be a draw. Let's have a negotiation, which is a terrible idea on many fronts, as you and I have often discussed. Well, after this, it's actually much harder to make those arguments. And and people, those voices will come back because they always do. But for a time, they're going to be muted. And people will say, well, you know, maybe the Russians are kind of on the ropes. Maybe that's what this tells us. And I don't think it's a coincidence, comrade, that, you know, you look at the public opinion polls, they're actually entirely supportive of Ukraine. I mean, the Senate's never been more unified on all this. I think I just saw Mike Pence flew to Ukraine. So I think it's going to keep American support robust. It's also, I think, beginning to move some of the European states and, and us, alas, off of our position, which had been to really try to defer NATO membership into the distant future. I think there'd be more people saying, you know what, maybe if the fighting either comes to a close or dies down some, maybe this is the right moment, coupled with all the other awful, hideous stuff the Russians have done. Elliot, as always, brilliant analysis, very insightful, and thank you so much for your time. Always happy to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 